1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Skylit.
0: This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we talk to authors from near and far, from the safety and comfort of their homes. <laughs> Here we are in quarantine times. Uh, I'm so excited today to have Mary Ann Cherry here to talk about her new book Morris Kite. Uh, I'm going to read a quick uh, biography of Marianne and then she's going to introduce the book with a short reading. All right, so Marianne Cherry is a Los Angeles-based writer with a di- diverse background in network and syndicated television and independent documentary films. Cherry has worked with nonprofit organizations, most recently created the Historical Archive for AIDS Healthcare Foundation. She enjoys a second career as an in demand specialized yoga therapist. Her new book is Morris Kite Humanist, Liberationist, Fantabulist A Story of Gay Rights and Gay Wrongs. Welcome, Marianne.
2: Hi, Maddie. It's nice to be here.
0: Thanks for being here.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, I'm going to introduce um, Morris Kite to your readers. Well, just just to tell you a little bit, he came to Los Angeles in the late '50s uh, from Albuquerque, where he lived. But he grew up uh, from Texas. He never he never lost his Texas roots, and that held him in good stead. And when he came to Los Angeles in the late '60s, he he noticed there was an eight, well he knew already that there was a need for social services for. Um, gay men for homosexuals were incredibly marginalized group. So he started putting his phone number out and his address and he created a uh, social services business underground that provided bail fund for men when they were arrested. And then eventually he got doctors to start treating people for STDs in the back room of his house. They called it the clap shack. Because in those days, if you had one STD, you were automatically reported to the board of health and then all your friends were notified, it was in the newspaper. It was, a, it was a public shaming and you very often lost your job. So there were even heterosexuals coming to him for treatment. Um, and then he paved the way for the post-Stonewall uh, gay revolution. If I can just read a little bit from the introduction, might give you a little bit better idea of what's in the book. Kite, the grand pandandrum of gay liberation, was indeed a complicated character. In some circles, he was known as an egotist. Meanwhile, right down the street is another group of people who would describe him as a Gandhi like godfather. Some people I spoke with about him simply needed to vent, others gushed. A few people refused to speak to me at all. His self importance is legendary even without this biography. Yet some of his worst and most appalling qualities served a broader purpose and benefited many people, while at the same time serving to beef up the profile of Morris Kite. None of this was new information. As much as possible, I have left Morris's own words intact, including his affected articulation, Edwardian enunciation, and seemingly run on sentences. His impeccable use of the English language and inflection in his speech is significant. There is not a trace of a small town, Texas, Drome until he chose to use it for emphasis. And then it was without a doubt an authentic dirt farm poor dirt farm twang. His stories offer not only an amazing accounting of the time, his history is solid, but conjure up a complete picture of the young Morris who showed an an awareness of the world around him while also providing a glimpse of how he viewed himself. Morris's perception of himself is always paramount, vacillating between shades of Oliver Twist and Quentin Crisp. What finally struck me was that Morris never dropped his guard, he never ever fully revealed himself even when he was his most vulnerable and he certainly never attempted an honest and humble assessment of himself. So that's from the introduction Um, and it's the only time in the book where I speak directly to the reader where I'm involved. Um, Other than that it's it's pretty much an historical narrative. I utilize um, uh, old-time chin-wagging and combined with academic research, to the best of my ability, um, the day before Mars passed away, he and I spoke on the phone. He was still working. He was, he was on his deathbed. He was still making phone calls, trying to facilitate things to happen. And we we talked about this book, and he told me about some files that he sent to a nascent archive back east in the early mid-70s, I'm going to say, a gentleman named Foster Gunnerson. And the files were lost as far as Morris were, con- was concerned. He never heard from Gunnison again. And I said, don't worry about it, Morris. You know, I'll, I'll figure it out. And a few years, and he gave me his blessing to tell, to tell his story. And a few years later, I was in uh, New York Public Library in their special collections going through Morty Manford's papers. Now, Morty Manford is a forgotten name of the early liberation on the East Coast. And he was a, a, a um, cohort of Morris, and there's a lot of letters between them. The third time I was going through those files, I found a newsletter haphazardly, you know, just tossed into one of the folders. And there was a tiny, there was a little article, about a one-inch article announcing that the Foster Gunnarsson papers had been acquired by the University of Connecticut, and it included uh, Morris Kite papers. Bingo. So I go on up to Connecticut. They were so kind at the uh, Thomas uh, J. Dodd Research Center up there. And there was a treasure trove. There was just a whole, it, it, it unlocked a whole other, other um, uh, safe as, as far as gay history goes. And, but my research really did begin in Albuquerque. And when I went to Albuquerque the first time to find out about Morris in the 50s, this was a different time in his life. He was married, he had two children, and he was on a whole different trajectory, probably would have run for governor of New Mexico at some point if things had worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got there, I got, it, Albuquerque is a, it's a large town or a small city. And I knew going through the library and some of their public records, it holds a piece of Morris Kite, that place. And as, even though he left shamed, He was run out of town, so to speak. It's still, his fingerprints are all over the place. And I knew right then that this was probably gonna be a bigger story than I initially anticipated. And there was a lot of times where I had to sit back and analyze the new information that I was getting about Morris, about the movement, about the times in which he lived. And I'm glad I took my time. I think think it, it pays off in the end.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this was a project a long time in the making.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So can we go back to the beginning? How did you, uh, how did you learn about Morris Kite? How did you get interested in um,
2: it? You know, I moved to Los Angeles in 1977. I'm a North Jersey girl. And I lived in Dennis for the first two years, which really was like, that was just a, a campus. Um, I always heard about this older gay guy who had a place downtown. And he was doing all these underground services. And eventually I moved into uh, Los Angeles. And at some point I, I uh, needed a job and I was working for a gentleman, John Ferry, who said, You're going to help, we're going to help out Mars Kite as well. And by that point, he was already well into his 70s, no, probably er- early 70s. And I would just do his missives for him. And we became friends and we would have lunch sometimes and I would drive him around, do his, I loved it. I really, I really enjoyed it. He, he was, um, he was a bit of a pain. He could be, no, nobody who knew him would deny that, but he was never acerbic. He was never um, harsh. He was just, he was Morris. That's who he was. And so I was fascinated about this guy and, and I sensed that there was a story there, that there was a good story to be mined. And I'm glad, I'm glad I followed up on that.
0: Hmm. So where did you begin when you wanted to tell Morris's story? What was like the most important thing you you had to get down first?
2: Um, I did uh, two things was um, I had the blessings also of his youngest daughter, Carol. She was on board. And when I went to Albuquerque and I saw the wedding announcements and, and I just saw this whole other side of his life, I knew I had to talk to his former wife. Now this is something that would not have happened if Morris was still alive. <laughs> and she was willing, Stanley Beth was willing, and she, was, um, she wanted this story to be told. And the more I thought about it, it's an important aspect of one person living in the closet. There's a whole slew of other lives that are left in a shambles as a result of that. It is not about one person in the closet. It's about all the other relationships. Um, so I, right before I went to Texas to meet with Stanley Beth, she had a stroke and she was mentally capable, but physically she was, her um, speech was still very labored. So I went back, I spent a lot of time with her, just being with her. And even though I could not get the interview that I needed at that point, I promised her that I would come back. And she promised me that she would do her occupational therapy and she would work on her speech. so I went back maybe about two years later, and it still wasn't there. I was getting the story, but I wasn't quite confident that I had it and I had to go back a third time, and she had done her work, and I was there, and she was willing to tell me the story. It was heartbreaking, and there she is. she was eighty three years old now at this point, and she was so i'm ripping open a wound from in from that happened to her in her 20s and she was so generous about this because she really would like to see this not happen to anyone else and when she she was it taught me a personal lesson too about rectifying our differences making peace with uh with uh, things that have happened in our lives and she was 83 years old and she just shouted out in the nursing home everybody in the fucking state knew but me. My heart broke for him. I just, you know, and I walked away and I said, if I do nothing right ev- ever again, I will tell this woman's story. And so I, I felt that that was really important. And it was an important aspect of Morris's story to tell. And then we have to move on from there. Then he gets involved and is more of he's more overtly active. He was always an activist, but but when that marriage uh, fell apart and he moved to Los Angeles, um, he he that that was all he could do was activism.
0: So, what did Los Angeles look like for a, a newly out gay man at that time?
2: Um. It. Probably, it's for, for many people, they probably say it was a little intimidating and scary, but I don't think it scared Morris Kite. He was, he was ready to take it on and he was ready to start to affect some change. But he also recognized that it wasn't the time to be talking about gay marriage or you know to these bigger ideas, because as he would say to Harry, hey, you ca- we can't even walk down the streets holding hands and you're going to talk about gay marriage. It wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. So, what Morris's mission in those early days was to empower individuals, and thereby he was going to build a community. And I think it worked because one arrest, if you got one entrapment, it ruined your life. And there were young men who were who were very ambitious, and they had things to offer, and they'd be derailed. And very often, Mark Morris witnessed that very often they would then just subject themselves to a life of alcoholism. Um, and it's, it's not, um, it's not fruitful for for us as a bigger society, and it's certainly not fruitful for a community. Mm.
0: Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's okay. Do you want to talk edited, about early activism? This out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about the early activism a little? Yeah, bit? Yeah, let's let's talk about where he started. Where did okay? Did let's you know? yeah. He started so so he was always a pacifist. Morris's pacifism goes back to the nineteen thirties, and he became um, a humanist. Is it? It's an organization which is really doesn't believe in an outside god it's a god within and we're responsible to our own consciousness that type of thing and it easily lends itself to pacifism and a, a um anti a, a nonviolent social resistance and the war in vietnam was just starting to percolate in the early 60s well he was he he was aware of it since the 50s that it was going to happen and from that, he became active in the Peace Action Council. And then from that, he, he, they, he was still active in that. And then he um, founded, co-founded an organization called the Dow Action Committee, which became the um, protest against the manufacturing of napalm, which was used in Vietnam against the Vietnamese civilians as well as our own soldiers. So, he figured out, they figured out the, um, it was really like attacking the military-industrial complex. And he hit Dow where it hurt. They had a a very successful boycott of Dow products. And they narrowed it down because there's a lot of Dow products, not just saran wrap. And they narrowed it down to like maybe a dozen. dozen products, rather than trying to say, don't buy any Dow products, they said they needed these. And it was effective. And they, they um, protested every single day, seven days a week at the Dow company in Torrance, and then also over on Wilshire Boulevard. They held um, uh, fasts. Mars didn't eat for 10 days as he protested for one period of time. And this gave him he uh, gave him something to do. He loved doing it. He loved protesting. You know how some of us go fishing and some people go shopping. Morris went protesting. That was his that was his way to unwind, um, and 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 be with his buddies. You know there was a real uh, cohesion between the protesters and you know gossip here and a little of that and who's doing this and, um, but from that he had part he had built up a lot of clout within the media and within other young activists and he had started to um, uh, activate young gay men mostly and lesbians and they started to become politically active so when stonewall happened in 69 excuse me (coughs) it was the perfect time for an effective above-ground gay movement prior to that pretty much everything was underground except for the uh, black cat uh, riot in the on uh, New Year's of 67. I think it was New Year's 67 going into 68. It was the Black Cat uh, riot, which is pretty famous now, uh, which was bigger than Stonewall was in 69. But you know, New York gets, gets the credit for the beginning of the gay revolution. So be it, at least it happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I wanna read you just a, a little bit from, I'm gonna read you something because um, by the early, well, I'm going to say at least by uh, 63, Morris picked up a, uh, an FBI tail. They were very interested in him. They were very interested in the anti-war movement. Morris was pretty uh, keen. He was pretty cool at uh, picking out who the, who the tail was and who the, um, if um, somebody had gotten arrested and then suddenly all their charges were dropped, Morris knew that they were, they were probably feeding information. Because there was a, you know, it was pretty easy to figure out. But I want to read you this one little bit <coughs> from during their, um, during the Dow Action Committee. Regularly, Monday nights were the general meeting of the Dow Action Committee, followed by good cheap food at a nearby Chinese restaurant called the Bamboo Inn. Over egg rolls, steaming noodles, and wonton soup, the quote, traditional soup of conspirators as Kite liked to call it, he and his friends discussed and analyzed the world's suffering and argued principles of the modern Western world with each other, other customers and the waiters. One night when the meal was over and the dishes cleared, the fortune cookies were laid out on the table. One by one, Kite and his friends opened their cookies and each received the same fortune, quote, the FBI is watching you, unquite, quote. They waited for the restaurant to close and once alone, Mr. Liu, the owner, locked the doors and came to sit with them at the table. He told them in his strained immigrant English that agents had been asking after the DAC's business. Mr. Liu told them that what Chinese people had learned after centuries of dealing with a rigid government, good, steady customers are a treasure worthy of emperors. Mr. Liu, according to Kite, said that dealing with the Dao Action Committee was very painful. Every Tuesday, the FBI visited Mr. Liu and asked dozens of questions about who was with them and what they discussed and if they left any notes. In recalling the story in 2000, Kite said, that's how the syndicate, the mafia, got control of this country's politics. Because J. Edgar Hoover was so preoccupied with hating the labor movement, hating the feminist movement, hating the lesbian gay liberation movement, hating the anti-war movement, that he totally ignored the mafia. The syndicate, they got control of our politics, and they still control it because of his inattention. I carried that fortune cookie piece of uh, paper in my wallet for 18 years until it finally turned to dust. It just wore in, end quote. Wow. So, yeah. So activism is a lot more than just showing up on the line. It's important to get our voices out there um my my blessings are with the peaceful protesters on our streets today um and you can tell there was a lot of um behind the scenes things happening
0: yes uh i will say i was at the protest on saturday um here in west hollywood and uh even though there were thousands and thousands of people there it felt like there were people throughout the crowd taking care of us and giving us instructions and showing us how to be safe. And um, it was, I've never been to a protest like that. Um, So it gives me a lot of hope that I think there are many more Morris kites out there.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. I believe, you know, the monitors on the uh, protest lines were very important. Um, Now, remember when Morris was doing this, there were no, he used phone trees a lot. But there wasn't email, there wasn't texting, there wasn't, you know, and we didn't even have, I, I don't even think there were voicemails at the time. So you would sometimes have to call back the same person six, seven times before you got them and say, you know, tomorrow's protest has been changed. We're not meeting at Tor- Torrance, we're meeting on Wilshire. But they, they, they did it somehow or other. they did it. The Dow Action Committee, I, I wanna say, was probably, if not the only, it was probably one of the best successful corporate boycotts in America. It was very effective. And I think boycott continues to be one of the best uh, corporate boycott tools that we have. Rarely employed anymore uh, because we want our Nikes. We want, we want what we want when we want it. And we've, be- we've become very spoiled as a people.
0: What are some of the other tactics that, that Morris and his uh, collaborators kind of w- worked with?
2: Um, well, I think I I will say that the peace movement was one thing. And then when he parlayed all of that, that, um, energy that he had built up and he told all his buddies in the peace movement, I'm going over to gay liberation now and you can come with me or you can miss the boat. Not everyone in the peace movement was all like pro-gay. They were, there were some real, let's say bigots there. But what he did in the gay liberation movement, which I think will 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 forever, and that may, maybe it's just the nature of being gay, but he made it fun. It was just he was going to make it. He was going to be a lot of fun because they were liberating themselves, and it were people who had been so uh, oppressed for so long, and they barely heard the sound of their own voice, and then to finally come out on the and in, into the streets, and to hear themselves proclaim their own rights to dignity was a big move and that they did it in fun ways and they created a lot of uh, positive attention for themselves um i think and the only rule that mars had in the glf as the gay liberation front and this is such a it's an important lesson for me personally um was we do not respond to criticism and when you think about it, if they started responding to all the criticism that they got, which was all that they got, they would not have any control over their argument. They would have allowed their opponent to frame the argument. And they're constantly on the defense. Mars made it an offensive um, um, demonstration. It, it was an offensive movement, meaning that he stayed on the LA Times. Why won't you print this ad in, with the word gay in it? Why won't you cover this story in a more positive way? And he started, he had everybody writing letters to TV shows. You portrayed a gay person in a negative light again. And it was, it was a very effective and I think empowering movement, incredibly.
0: Hmm. (sighs) Um, So let's talk a little bit more about uh your research process and, and putting this book together. Um, so you mentioned you you found these art these great
2: archives. Yes I found the I found well first was the um Albuquerque. Now I still had a lot of Morris's papers. Uh, the the few days before Morris passed he signed over his collection you know he has a great art collection which is at the one institute at USC uh, which is a, which is a fantastic organization. And he, so, but there was still a lot of papers that I had and that somebody else had. So I had certain pieces and, and his later work is, is really well documented everywhere, but I wanted to get some dirt under my fingernails in doing this. And as I said, I went to New York, I went through the Morty Manfred papers. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Katz, uh, Jonathan Ned Katz was very uh, generous there. It was a couple, couple of things there that were very helpful. And then Connecticut, um, and then going up to San Francisco and going through the Harry Hay files, there were letters that I found in Morris's paper in papers in Connecticut that answered letters that were found in Harry Hay's files in San Francisco, which then also connected to Jim Kepner letters in at one. So there was a lot of triangulation that happened there and I think putting together the letters that Harry wrote about Morris and putting them with the letters that Harry wrote to Morris is humorous it's very funny and and you can see there's a, a there's a dynamic that comes out of these grown men talking like like junior high school girls <laughs> really about each other it was uh, um so there was that a lot of those putting those letters together which was you know when you you lose that one puzzle piece and you find it it's really is a glorious day
0: it's so so, <laughs> so there was a right?
2: lot of moments like that um yeah
0: well and it must have been interesting too because you knew the real Morris uh in in a in a specific period of his life but then going through all of this research you're seeing not only his own kind of recountings of his life, but also other people's recountings and
2: analyses of his life. So you're getting a lot of different inputs there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. As I say in the, in the introduction, he never really did attempt a full analysis of himself. And he, it just wouldn't be in his nature. It would be very external. And so to, and I also spoke with two family historians that pieced together his mother's story, which is really quite hair raising his mother and his relationship with his mother is another whole movie onto itself. Um, and there was this, um, Morris always, he always seemed to have a, a outside perspective of himself and the world. And yet he didn't really have the, um, the self-awareness about how that fit into, about, about how he really fit into a room. He, he was a man of action we can just say that, and he was a man of of, of um, results as well.
0: And he was a man who did not want to take criticism.
2: He did. Well, no, he never responded to criticism. I mean, the GLF, the, the young the young people in the GLF, they really couldn't get that until many, many years later in their lives, they realized, oh my God, that's all we would have been doing is responding to the criticism. But Morris, like right to his last day, he would never respond to criticism. And I would sometimes say to him, hey Morris, you know, you hurt my feelings when you did this and did that. And he'd say, I will try to do better. And he'd move on. That's, that's how he was. And, um, and I think there's, there's some worthwhile comment to that. You're not, you're not ignoring the criticism. You're just, you're not gonna respond to it right now. And I, I mean, I think that when you put yourself in certain positions, that's all you're gonna get.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like his goal was in advancing this cause, you know, single-mindedly. Uh, and that, you know, if you're stopping to listen to this input and that input and that input, you're not gonna make any progress. You're not gonna get anywhere. So oh, yeah. I don't know where he's coming from on that.
2: Correct, correct. And and they already knew what the criticism was. They already knew what what kind of comments they were gonna be hearing. So there was nothing to answer to except that you'd just be showing anger. And yeah. the the really the hardest part of this whole movement was to keep it nonviolent um because for the most part with with the exception of the Stonewall inn rebellion um the the um gay movement has been very nonviolent and it's been very effective as a passive resistance and i think it's it's impressive and there's um Because it has been so successful, and when you look at the trajectory of where gay rights has come in 50 years, as opposed to how far or how little women's rights has come in a century. So there is something to be said for the effective leadership. Not to criticize any of the early women's, uh, the, the, any of the second wave feminists, because they were important people. But I think with a kite at the with a Morris kite at the helm, you're gonna have a certain amount of um, finesse with the media.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the media wing of his campaign was really super effective, and him being stationed in Los Angeles getting to attack you know, depictions of gay people directly in television and film, right, as they're coming out. Like, mm-hmm. that seems important to me. And, and it does seem like a lot of the progress that we see now is in depictions of, of LGBT people. Um, we're seeing more and more kind of own voices stories here in, in the literature world. Um, and I think that comes from this idea of you have to attack the, the depictions first. You have to get the, the images to change, to, be, to reflect you before you can expect policies to change.
2: Correct, Maddie. You're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's inculcating the thinking in culture. And that may be one of the most difficult things to do. Of course, it's very easy to do on television. And you have television on your side, you've got powerful tool. But that wasn't going to happen right away. They had to, you know, so he was out there. He was, he was, you know, uh, picketing. They had got a lot of people out on the streets to picket the film Cruisin' and a couple of other um, smaller TV shows. They would monitor the newscasts. Uh, Very rarely would you see anything positive about homosexuals. And they only, they, and they would often even like sort of glamorize the, the uh, violence against homosexuals. Got another one type of thing. And, and that's, that's, that needs to change. That, that needed to change. And I think to a certain degree, we still need to be, um, on that. We have to be aware of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, can you talk a little bit about, like, how were activists at that time talking about liberation? What did liberation mean to them? And how maybe is that different from where we are today?
2: That's a, that's a uh, very subtle question, um, because there is the, the liberation that Morris Kite envisioned, um, which was, he, he definitely politicized the gay movement. And as one person says, um, to think of a group of people organizing around their sexual identity to achieve a political purpose is insane, but it did work. But even within those fractions, there were still splinters um gay liberation means one thing to one person and it's going to mean something else to the bigger umbrella movement um what i think um it it, it was it was more than just being able to get married and it's more than there was you know what what we're witnessing now with race relations we really haven't come that far at the end of the day and Morris wanted to stop people because he knew that employment agencies used a code in the upper right-hand corner, 33, whatever that meant, it indicated, I mean, with, wherever that number came from, but it indicated that the applicant was clearly a homosexual. So maybe it was 33, 33% of a person. I, we can never figure that out completely. So there's no more code. There's no more codes used to identify um, a gay person um i don't know why the you know, race relations hasn't improved as much as um gay relations in the in the bigger picture of society i think a lot of it has to do with class has to do with earning power um if we if you just generally speaking as a you know a, a rule of thumb most or many uh, gay households are double income no children uh now we wouldn't say that of most heterosexual households or most um African American households. So there's a there's an advantage that may not be um so obvious to the outside. I think a lot of it has to do with earning power. I really do. hmm
0: Yeah, money money talks in America for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Um well t- I don't want to wrap this up because I know there's there's so much to say about Morris but uh I wonder if we could kind of talk a bit more about what is Morris's legacy today um who's kind of carrying on his work and and how can we um kind of interpret what he did and apply it to to what you know our struggle is now
2: Well um I think there's there's great examples of lesbian and gay leadership in our world, in the society today. I mean, at the first name that comes to mind is Sheila Kuhl on the uh, County Board of Supervisors. She's a, a, a fine example, a replica of uh, what gay leadership can do. And not just for gay people. You know, it's, it's no longer this, this isolationism because there really was an argument that gay people wanted to be of their own, you know, kind of go off, isolate. Um, and then there was the argument, well, if you don't isolate, then you have to assimilate. I don't think either of those things have happened or is necessary. I think, I think there's a whole new path that has been forged here. Michael Weinstein, the president of uh, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Morris was uh, one of the original board members back in 1986 when they started with a coffee can and a clipboard. That's what they started with. And now they're in almost 50 different countries. They're an effective uh, social services agency. These are all examples of michael's of, of Morris's um, leadership of how he shaped people Um there's, there's when you look around, we, we no longer have to look into the gay circles to find gay leaders they're They're everywhere, and I think they're they're fine examples. Mm.
0: yeah, I think there's there's a lot uh, that, that we have today that we have to thank people like Morris for um, yes for sure well. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about Morris? Any other stories, tidbits? Um... I, think,
2: I think the tone that Morris set in the movement is is something, because um, it was fun. Like I said, it was very colorful. You know, the first gay pride parade, nobody knew what was going to happen. And the fact that it came out with all these different colors and all these different kinds of people was wonderful. It really was a great surprise. But Morris also set a, He he was because he was so pushy and he could be, um, he could take a lot of the limelight, he forced people to compete with him on his level. And I would like to think that it was a friendly competition, but really what it, it and sometimes it wasn't so friendly, but it it gave young gay leaders, with people who he was sort of mentoring, the ability to have confidence in their message. And they never, they they don't look around waiting for somebody to tell them to go ahead and do that. Oh, that's okay. You can do that. They don't wait for permission. Morris Hite didn't wait for permission, and they got the, He was the best example for that type of thing. You have something you want to do, you go out there and you do it.
0: Mm. Very powerful words. I think, yes. I think we're all trying to live by that right
2: now. <laughs> I, we are. You're absolutely right, Maddie. I I just wish you know safety and and peace for all of us. Yes, very much. Well, thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you, Maddie. It was a pleasure. And, th- and thank you, Skylight Books. It's a happening place. Can't yes. wait for you guys to open again and we can go and hang out.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'd like to have your event happen in person <laughs> at
2: some point soon. I know, at some point. I, I hope so, too. It's such a beautiful shop you have. Oh, thank you. All yeah. right. Well, Marianne Cherry, thank you for being here.
0: Marianne's book is Morris Kite, Humanist, Liberationist, Fantabulist. It's out now. You can get it on our website, skylightbooks.com. We hope you'll check it out and educate yourself and get out there in the streets peacefully. Peacefully.
1: (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.